If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15, and we will be in verse 11 today, and just one singular verse that we'll be together in. And the reality is, this is the road to the resurrection part four, but it's really, I didn't finish my sermon last week, so it's really road to the resurrection part three, part two of part three, all right? So we're going to have a six-part series. This is part three, part two. Everybody clear? We're good? All right, so we're going to be in one verse, Mark chapter 15, verse 11. So put your finger there and also turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It just, it feels like as we've been in this particular passage that the Lord just keeps giving more good things to it. You know, sometimes you, you just read it and you think, man, that, that's good. And then you, you go dive in a little more and you say, man, that's good too. And then you dive in a little more and man, that's good too. And so there just continues to be kind of a wellspring of life from these heavier type passages. And so we find ourselves in just one particular passage, Mark chapter 15, verse 11. And I want to zero in on just two places that I want us to really sink deep into our heart so that we would leave here, again, as always, different than when we came in. So Mark chapter 15, verse 11, it says this. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. That's it. That's what we got. All right, so... The chief priests stirred up the crowds to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. Let's see, listen into our hearts. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to do the things that you have called us to do. To do them with intentionality, with grace, with compassion, with love, but with truth. Lord, would you, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, we recognize that last week we, we saw Jesus standing before Pilate. The chief priests and the scribes have brought Jesus before, uh, the, the Pilate to, before Pilate to be tried, and then ultimately their desires to see Jesus killed and put away from the people. So this is where we find our story. And let's look back for just a moment, number one, at the breadcrumbs of Barabbas. Several people last week asked about, what do you mean by the breadcrumbs of Barabbas? What do you mean when you talk about the breadcrumbs? Well, here we see that a convicted insurrectionist and murderer is set free while an innocent man is sent to die. This is the story of Barabbas. As I shared last week, for me, this was like God waving his arms, his holy arms around saying, one more time before Jesus goes to the cross, let me share for you one more time what this is going to look like, what the gospel is going to be. It's Barabbas. Innocent man gone to die while an insurrection murderer is set free. In no better way does it demonstrate for us while I am a still sinner, Christ died for us than Barabbas. I mean, right there. And we talked about how that is a breadcrumb that leads us back to the gospel table. We know the familiar story of Hansel and Gretel when they're led out into the, the woods that they put behind them, pebbles and breadcrumbs. So when they're led out and lost, they'll have the pebbles that would lead them all the way back home. In the same way, at times when we get off the pathway, when we fall short, when we're frustrated and lost, we have the breadcrumbs of the story of the gospel that lead us back home. Maybe today you feel like you are lost and frustrated and just weary from all the things, and that's what I would tell you, look for the breadcrumbs that take you home. Because what we have seen is that God indeed is faithful. 
He was faithful to one more time, wave his arms and say, in case you miss this, once again, here's the story of Barabbas. Let me show you the gospel. He's faithful to us. He's faithful to set free Barabbas by ultimately sending his son to die on the cross. It seems like I remember earlier saying 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That even in the midst of our temptations, we would look around and say, where's my way of escape? Where's my strength? Oh, it's from the Lord. God is faithful. So even in the midst of temptations, we see God is faithful. It seems like I remember another scripture memory verse at some points, Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great mercy, because of the great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. The mercy of the Lord is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We see this consistent theme of God's faithfulness even when we may not be faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Exodus 34, 6, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What we see, even through the story of Barabbas, is God demonstrating his love and faithfulness to his people. And they are breadcrumbs that on your worst days lead you back to the gospel table. Time and time again, as you see the sun rise in the morning, you say, great is your faithfulness. Oh, Lord, your mercies were new for me today. As you see a rainbow in the sky, you think, Lord, this is your covenant love over your people. Great is your faithfulness. Over and over again, as you read your copy of God's word, you see he is yet faithful. Sometimes in the biggest of things and sometimes in the smallest of things. Yesterday, uh, we were on our way home. I, I got the joy of doing the wedding of uh, Peyton Parkman and Wynn Dempsey, and it was in uh, North Carolina on Bald Head Island. I believe yesterday, Brittany and I took every possible mode of transportation. We, we took a ferry boat, we took a golf cart, we took a plane, we took a car, we took a taxi, we took uh, our shoes, we ran as fast as we could through an airport. And there in Wilmington, our, our plane uh, decided that it was going to chime all throughout the takeoff sequence, so they decided they couldn't let us take off. So I believe they did what any good mechanic would do. They turned the plane on, and they turned it, turned it off, and then they turned it back on again, and it stopped chiming. So they let us take off, right? And so we're, we're flying, and I'm working on this sermon and just thinking, man, this, I still got a long way to go. Right, for those of you who've taught Bible study or small groups or sermons before, you know a sermon is never done. You just run out of time. And I'm sitting up in the air last night about 7 o'clock thinking I've got a long way to go. But I've learned not to pray, Lord, would you give me more uh, sermon illustrations? Because usually they come in ways that you don't want. So I didn't pray for it, but he still did it. And so we land and um, the stewardess says, um, you know, you probably want to run because you're, you may not make it and they're not going to hold the gate for just the two of you. So uh, you, you just need to run. So Brittany and I get our bags and rerun with everything in us through the Atlanta airport at eight o'clock at night trying to get on our flight. And there we get to our gate and we see in front of us the plane and the door closed. And we begin to think, well, we're stuck. I mean, we're done. They're not going to open this gate. And if we do open the door, we're going to go to prison. So um, we'll go talk to Delta and see what we can do. And so we go over to Delta and they tell us there's really nothing we can do. And so we decide, well, we'll just find some way to get home. I begin to look at rental cars and see the incredible price of a rental car and 
all sorts of different ways to get home from Atlanta, knowing that uh, Kenny was on tap if I could not make it home, but I wanted to make it home. And so we began to walk to the airport with our $30 meal voucher, beginning to think, what are we going to do? How are we going to make it home? And Brittany just said, you know, we should just pray that God would send us some church members to bring us home. I'm thinking, great prayer, but we really, we've got a massive Atlanta airport and where are we going to find church members at 8 o'clock at night coming through Atlanta to go back to Montgomery? And about the time we say that, I turn around, and who do I see but church members, <laughs> Will and Jill and their sons, Hugh and Bragg. And here's Hugh saying, hey, Mar- hey, Pastor Mark, where's Micah? Where's your kids? And I say, we need a ride home, please. <laughs> and they say, well, our luggage is on a different flight, so we have plenty of room in our car for you to come and, and go home with us. And y'all, when you look at God is faithful, I, I, I know it's a small little example, but all the things for Brittany to say, hey, we should just pray that God would bring us some church members and to turn around. And there are church members. Y'all, you look at the bigness of things to say God is faithful when you're faithless to forgive you of your sins, but even in the smallest of details of life, God is faithful. Where husband Mark wanted to use our meal voucher to go get Chick-fil-A, but he's like, let's just go down the stairs, let's get out of here, and they're right behind us. God is faithful. In our days when we forget it, there are the breadcrumbs of the gospel that would lead us back to the table, where over and over again, God waves his arms to say, don't forget the reality, I am faithful. You may be faithless, I am faithful. On the days when you forget it, here's Barabbas. Look at Barabbas, known murderer, set free so I could go to the cross. On the days that you don't feel worthy, see the gospel story played out beautifully. I am faithful to you. That's why we need to journal it and write it down because we are so forgetful that they're in an airport terminal at eight o'clock at night when you turn around and least expect it. God is faithful. As sure as you wake up in the morning and you see the sun hitting your window, God is faithful. You've not yet exhausted the grace of God. His mercy was new for you as sure as your eyes opened up in the morning. God is faithful. In the midst of your temptations, in the midst of your struggles, when you see the way of escape, you say, God is indeed faithful. He's provided the strength that I was able to endure. God is faithful. And so in the midst of Barabbas, once again, waving his arms for us, to see 2,000 years later in Montgomery, Alabama, God is faithful. So with that, that's not really my sermon, but let's, that just happened. So let's, let's go through to the rest of the meat of what we're talking about. The breadcrumbs of Barabbas will lead us to the stirring of the chief priest and the elders. The crux of what we see is in four words, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Four words, the stirring of the chief priest and the elders. We see all through in Matthew chapter 27 that the chief priests and the elders are persuading the crowd to release Barabbas. We remember last week the rap sheet of Jesus is that he is a known healer. He's healed people of their diseases and their afflictions and their infirmities. Jesus has healed a multitude of people. That's Jesus, Barabbas, insurrectionist, murderer. Right? So in some way, you've got the chief priests and the elders. Can't you see them just walking around being like, we probably need to release Barabbas? probably, hey guys, Barabbas is the guy. Barabbas? But what about Barabbas? And the chief priests and elders, can't you see them concocting a plan of bringing up this, all these different half-truths and lies and gossip to the people so that the people eventually turn on Jesus and ask to release Barabbas? 
And we see that has overflowed from last week out of the heart of envy and jealousy out of the chief priest and the elders. I mean, let's just think on an analogy level that most of us would identify with. Most of us have a favorite sports team that we love and that we cheer for often. What happens when you leave a ball game after several games that you have lost? Do you walk through the corridors of the stadium and do you hear the stirring up of people? Do you sometimes get lost in it too? Yeah, we got to fire the coach, get rid of all the players. We got to do something. We got to fire management. It's terrible out there. We got just, we didn't get, just, this is bad. We walk around and just hearing people talking, even the corridors of the stadium, people are stirring everybody up. Team's terrible. This is just horrible. I'm not coming back to another game. I'm not buying season tickets. Are you buying season We're not buying season tickets. This is garbage. We're just out there stirring the pot. You feel it. You've done it before. There's moments of stirring the pot of frustration, of seeing everybody just rally around stirring. And the chief priests and elders... Because of what was in their heart, the bitterness and envy and jealousy in their heart, it boils over into the people around them. And last week we talked about envy and jealousy and we talked about what it does for a person, but what it always does is it spills out in different ways, into gossip, into slander, into non-truths. But for a moment, I want us to look at the stirring of the chief priest, but I want to identify not with what we just not do, but with with what we are called to do. So we can look at the chief priest and say, hey, guys, don't stir up people like that. That's bad. Don't do it. And that's good. But sometimes we as believers are kind of known for all the things that we're not doing. Hey, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't say this. Don't go there. Don't touch this. Don't do that. Don't do that. And we talk so much about what not to do. Sometimes we cannot elevate what we are called to do. What is the ideal for us as believers? In the Garden of Eden, sometimes we look and say, well, they couldn't eat of the tree in the garden. But look at all the stuff they got to do. Look at what all God called them to do. Name the animals, work, joy of presence of relationship. And sometimes we say, well, God didn't let them eat. That's not fair. And so let's this morning flip the script for just a moment. And instead of talking about what the chief priests and elders did wrong, let's see what we are called to do as believers. And let's flip over Hebrews chapter 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Remember hearing that somewhere? Let us consider then how to stir one another up. All right. So what's he about to say? To stir one another up to what? To anger, to jealousy, to bitterness, to wrath, to clamor and slander, to division. To stir one another up to what? To love and to good works. This is the calling of the believer, to stir one another up, to love and to good works. And he even goes so far as to say, let us consider. Meaning that this is a premeditated sense of stirring one another up. This is something that you think through. Because the natural, normal things in our souls is to stir one another up to all sorts of other things. It's far easier. It's far simpler. And it, it, it's easier for us to do is to stir one another up to division and strife and jealousy and envy and all these other stuff. It's far easier. As the writer of Hebrews would say, let us consider. Let us premeditate. Let us plan out. Let us think through carefully how we're going to stir one another up to love and to good works. 
Many of you know I grew up the son of a, of a coach. As the son of a coach, I also got to go in the locker room as a water boy and get ready for the game. And I used to love uh, varsity or junior varsity, whatever it was, to hear the coach give the pep talk. Some of you as players, you were in a locker room before and you heard a coach give a pep talk. But I used to love going from guys seated in their lockers to all of a sudden to the last note of a coach giving a pep talk. The guys are ready to get up and they're ready to go, even though a coach may know that they're not going to win, but they're going to get up. They're ready to go, man. They're ready to go out and charge out in that field. They're ready to tackle people to win the game. The coach gets them out of the locker onto the field to run through the banner and ready to go. We've joked that Coaches can sometimes get kids to charge hell with a squirt gun, right? I mean, they're just ready to go, amped up and ready. As a coach, that's what, that's what you do in the locker room. You, you get your players amped up, ready to go, charged up. You're stirring them up, ready to go. And can I tell you, as a believer, that's kind of what you're called to do too. You may not be that fiery coach who can stand in front of a Sunday school class, getting them provoked up to love and good works, but you as a believer are called to stir one another up to love and to good works. Another, because this verse is not given to a singular believer to live their life in isolation. This verse is meant in community. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting for us to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you, as you see the day drawing near. It's hard to stir nobody up, to love nobody, and to do good works for nobody else. I mean, to stir one up to love and to good works would mean that we're stirring one another to do things for other people, to love other people. This is always done in community. So let me give you three quick places that you would look to to examine yourself to see if I am stirring one another up to love and to good works. You can just meet these in the margin of your page. One, are you stirring people up with your words? A couple weeks ago on a Sunday night, I preached the power of our words, and your words, as the Proverbs say, have the power of life and death in your tongue. So are you stirring people up to love and good works with your tongue, with your words? Are you tearing people down and hurting them with your words? Secondly, with your actions. Are your actions driving people towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Are your actions stirring people towards Jesus, towards the gospel? Are your actions stirring people away from Jesus? And lastly, we recognize that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. The stirring of the chief priest, the stirring that we will do will always be out of the overflow of what we put into our heart. If we're bitter and angry, frustrated and jealous, it will always come out of us in some way. We will always stir the pot around us. That's why it's so intentional that we must get our hearts pure and clean so that our words and actions would overflow out of our hearts. Strive to stir up towards greater things. In a culture that loves to stir one another up to all sorts of things apart from the gospel, your calling as an individual believer and our calling as a church is to be like a coach that stirs up his players ready to go out and play the game. A coach that would stir up his players to say, I can do this, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to do this, I'm ready to love people well, I'm ready to do good works for my king. 
So how will you use your words? How will you use your actions and what's in your heart to stir one another up to love and to good works? Because we see the ending of this in Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24, but encouraging one another. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together to have this up, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. The reality is we've made it another day, so the day is drawing one day nearer. We are one day either closer to the Lord coming back or us going home to be with the Lord. So that means the urgency every day that we are alive increasing increases. So encourage one another. Put the courage of the Lord into your brothers and sisters around you. I pray that when you come into this place, I pray when you go to your Bible fellowship classes, I pray when you are around me or other people in our church, you are stirred up. If you activate your sanctified imagination, there's probably people in your life that you are around that you think when I'm around them, man, I want to get into my word. I want to go on mission. They just, they're contagious with the gospel. And you can probably think of those people right now. You can probably write their names down. When you're around them, man, you're just, you're, it almost just, it, it leeches off of you, onto you and you're, just, you're ready to go and be with Jesus. But on the flip side, you can probably activate your imagination. Think of people that you're around. When you're around them, they lead you and they drive you far away from the Lord. I pray we're not those kind of people. That when people are around you, man, they're ready to find their squirt gun and they're ready to charge hell. They're ready to extinguish some darkness with the light. They're ready to live in truth. They're ready to stir one another up to love and to good works. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the strength to do the things that you have called us intentionally to do. Lord, we just stop and say thank you that you are faithful. The breadcrumbs always lead us home. Thank you that even in our temptations and our failures that you are faithful. Thank you that you've given us a picture clearly of the gospel through Barabbas. Lord, I thank you for those other pictures of the gospel that we see every single day. For the rainbow that reminds us of your covenant love. For the sun rising in the morning, a reminder of your mercy new for us every day. The cross where your blood was shed. A picture of the measure of your love over us. Lord, I pray we stir each other up. We provoke one another towards you. So help us to do that. Let our hearts be pure before you to do those things that you have entrusted for us to do. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.